Rob Shank here. Welcome to Shank Talks Bonhoeffer, a podcast all about the life, times, and interests of this brave, brilliant, young German church leader, one of the first voices to speak out in opposition against Adolf Hitler, National Socialism, Nazism, and its uh, racist, racialized, uh, tyranny in the Third Reich. Of course, that would cost Bonhoeffer his life, but not without first leaving us a wonderful legacy on uh, a library on ethics, on moral philosophy, on the role of religion in building a just society. In these podcasts, uh, I like to... Um, have a conversation with a partner. And today I've been really looking forward to this one because uh, he is no stranger to me or to the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute. Shai Franklin is an experienced nonprofit executive with uh, work in government relations, grassroots and diplomatic advocacy, uh, board development and capacity building, his humanitarian and policy work has taken him for long periods to Geneva, Jerusalem, Mumbai, and Moscow. In his capacity as a top professional with the World Jewish Congress, Shai served several years as treasurer of the Conference of Non-Governmental organization, uh, Organizations uh, in consultative relationship with the United Nations and was one of the organizers of the International Council of Jewish Parliamentarians. While at WJC, he spearheaded high-level initiatives through a wide range of international organizations, including the United Nations, Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, Organization of American States, the International Red Cross, and Interpol. He has also developed numerous initiatives in the United States and shaped and shepherded legislation on, uh, on all of that uh, as it developed into U.S. public law. In New York State, Shai raised hundreds of thousands of dollars in contributions for political candidates, and he organized a grassroots and interreligious coalition that secured tens of millions of dollars and in increased government reimbursements to non-public schools. He has testified in the U.S. Congress before the New York State Legislature. He's addressed numerous international fora of the OSCE, United Nations, and the Interparliamentary Conference on Human Rights and Religious Freedom. Uh, in addition to all of his work, he has a solid uh, academic background, degrees from Temple University, summa cum laude, the Johns Hopkins University Nietzsche School of Advanced International Studies, where he was selected for the U.S. government's elite presidential management intern program. In addition to fluent English and Hebrew, he also speaks Arabic and French. And if all of that is not important enough, he happens to be one of our most recently appointed senior fellows for the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute, which puts him right in the middle of the family, and we couldn't have a better relative. So, shy with all of that, welcome to the conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you, for Rob. Joining Thank us. you. Thank you for the opportunity to continue our conversation. Yeah, and continue it is because I'm going to come right out of the gate beg your pardon again, and admit to uh, a faux pas, because you and I had an earlier conversation this year. We were getting ready to release that wonderful discussion and had a technical glitch. We were not able to retrieve your priceless wisdom in the digital universe. And so we're here again to have another conversation that we are guarding with our lives. Well, Rob, Rob <laughs> thank what, you what for I, indulging it's us. My, it's my pleasure. Every, every conversation we have is part of a single conversation. 
a continuing conversation. And uh, since our first conversation, which was facilitated by our, our, our dear, dear friend who re just recently passed away uh, very yes. suddenly, Joe Grabowski. Yeah. So I uh, certainly want to dedicate this podcast to him, but also uh, I, I, every opportunity to ha engage in this conversation is, is, is wonderful. Each one is, is deeper and, and better than, than the one that came before. And so whatever we talked about a few months ago, I'm sure that uh, we'll go even further this time. It won't just be a replica. Yeah, and as you say, it will be just the latest installment in what I hope will be a lifelong conversation with you, my friend. And your presence at TDBI, the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute, has already uh, enriched it. And here we go again. Uh, but first, uh, we're going to slot this conversation into our ongoing series, Introducing Our Senior Fellows. Now, I just read your formal biography, uh, and there's plenty there. But it doesn't say a whole lot about your personal story. I know that you weren't born a nonprofit executive, though you certainly have the inherent skills and talent for it. But uh, can you give us just a little personal biography? What's, what's your, you know, your family story? I grew up in a, an academic family and in, in Philadelphia. And a lot of my parents' friends and a lot of the kids that I played with were the children of uh, prominent intellectuals, mostly in in the Jewish world, but but who crossed into the the general uh, general society as well. So there was always an integration of the these big ideas with Jewish identity. And in the 1970s, my parents and and even I as a child were very active in support of uh, Soviet Jewry movement, the religious and uh, freedom of emigration rights for Jews in the Soviet Union, which Definitely, uh, I don't know if it, how much it overlapped, but it certainly went parallel with a lot of the efforts to uh, secure rights for Christians, particularly non-Orthodox Christians in, in the Soviet Union and behind the Iron Curtain. So when my father, when my father got a Christmas card from Andrei Sakharov in <laughs> Gorky, <laughs> and he had the chance later to, to verify it with Elena Bonner, Sakharov's wife, that he had a actually sent the Christmas card uh, because my father was in the same field as Sakharov and was, was active on his behalf as well, Sakharov not being Jewish, but very active and supportive of Jews and other dissidents. Uh, it, it, on, the other, on the one hand, I was, I was very proud, and on the other hand, I was uh, not, not totally surprised. So, uh, so that's, that's kind of the, the circle I grew up in. And we spent a few years as I was growing up, uh, separate years in Israel. My father was uh, doing academic academic research over there on exchange, and uh, and then we also spent a lot of time in traveling around Europe, in campgrounds, in and living also in Bucharest and Romania, again behind the Iron Curtain. So I saw communism, I saw the. I saw the different the different shades of communism in different countries, and the different shades of of democracy in Western Europe. Mm. And when I had the opportunity to be in Moscow shortly after the collapse of the Soviet Union, I was one of the one of the things that struck me most was I saw a parade of Salvation Army volunteers, really? and and they were wearing uniforms that had been that had belonged to their grandparents and had been hidden away through the 70 years of communism and they were able now for the first time to take them out and wear them publicly and that was very moving it was very moving the and the idea that after 70 years people would be able to to maintain this you know we we think about world war ii where for for just a period of a few years it was so difficult for people to maintain their their humanity it was such a challenge and yet maybe it's maybe it's a challenge that is is very natural maybe that's mm -hmm. maybe that's part of us and so when i as i've come to know dietrich bonhoeffer through you and through the institute and through my own reading uh i i i've learned that there there's a there's a despair that we that we experience but there's also there's also a hope that is somewhat grounded in 
in reality and in, in personal experience in history. So that's, I guess, that's that's sort of the the short of it. Yeah, well, I know there's a longer version. I have to thank you for sharing the Salvation Army anecdote because um, uh, my first pastor was a Salvation Army officer, Salvation Army captain. And my connection is very deep uh, to that tradition. So... Um, that's really wonderful. That 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 choked me up a bit. Uh, your telling of that of that story, and uh, that impression that was made on you there, and and in your other experiences, I met you in the sphere of uh, international religious freedom issues uh, and concerns, and you've done a lot of work. Uh, and good work. Thank you very much uh, in that in that whole sphere. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? You, you, what drives you towards that? What informs you, your particular philosophy on that question of religious freedom? There's a strategic rationale for for doing this uh, each each group each each individual uh, wants to make sure that their own rights are, are protected so you work with others to make sure that their rights are protected and we all get through this together that's the strategic level which is is certainly useful if you're trying to convince somebody who only thinks in those terms of, of uh, transactional reward and uh, investment and reward and things like that but uh, what I what I really found was the more I got involved in the religious freedom, for example, on Soviet Jews, was that well, the more I got involved in that, the more I got to know and to understand and appreciate other faiths that were fighting for the same for the same rights. And, and it's not just in an activist sense, you know. Since I, I observe the Sabbath on Saturday. Uh, my my Jewish school and other Jewish schools were uh, were not taking SATs on Saturdays, which is usually administered on Saturday. We would take mm. it on on Sunday, and there was a special. There was all the educational testing service had a set up at University of Pennsylvania, fifteen minutes from my home. So there were a few Sundays during the year when we could go there and and get tested, and so there would be all all the Jewish students would be there. And all the Seventh Day Adventist kids would be there, of course. Uh, and they they were they were mostly African American, and so we we had something in common that was not based on on the color of our skin. It was not based on our faith, but but we actually did have something in common in terms of our faith. And and there's a lot of commonality. But I think the religious freedom issue is about recognizing recognizing the different ways that people can can come to spirituality and to meaning and that ideally it leads to the, to the same to the same place at least on this earth so that uh, so that we can find common cause on the rights issues but also find common understanding and we can learn from each other so that is sort of i guess the next level or two levels up from the strategic which is the religious dialogue and, and understanding and meaning of our own individual particular traditions and faiths is, is not just a vehicle for making sure that our rights are protected. It, it is an end in itself. And so uh, I, I guess I've, I've come to have a more nuanced and a more multi-channel understanding of what, what religious freedom means and what, what religion means and and what respect for each other means it's not just making sure that some some person with some crazy customs should have the right to do their crazy customs but maybe i can learn from their crazy customs and maybe my customs are a little crazy too when looked in the mirror mm, a very bonhoeffian concept because uh, bonhoeffer was very big on how religions inform one another and and one religion may have an angle on truth or human 
behavior, human experience, or even on the divine uh, that another cannot or does not have. And so they enhance one another. It's, it's terribly Bonhoeffrian. Thank you. <laughs> uh, that's the highest compliment we can pay anyone around here. So uh, I, I, I do that easily with you. Let me ask you, Shai, you know, of course, uh, having lived in Israel, uh, being Jewish, um, your experience uh, and, and, and uh, work at the uh, United Nations, etc., have all uh, given you, uh, I think, a perspective and an understanding of Israel in a way maybe um, others would not. Uh, it, it's not this. It, it, these aren't not the only things that make you an expert on Israel. You have studied and and you have worked uh, with the Israelis. And I want to get there um, and talk a little bit about the relationship between the United States and Israel, but particularly through a religious lens. So, if I may segue. Uh, and hear just a little bit more about your work with Israel in particular. Um, you shared a, a humorous story with me about uh, your experience uh, with uh, Ehud Olmer uh, the other day. But, um, you know, your experiences have been both formal, professional, and personal. Can you talk a little bit about the interplay between yourself and and uh, the state of Israel and its leadership. Sure. So, you know, my my parents were teenagers when the state of Israel was declared. So for them and for their parents, it was really. I I I have no comparison to make really that would be accessible. It, it was just it was tremendously it was tremendous it was overwhelming. Uh, they were, my mother in particular, grew up in a very uh, actively Jewish family, and and her mother was active in Hadassah, uh, uh, which is a Zionist women's organization. And uh, the idea that there was a state of Israel, not so much because of the Holocaust, because there was still not much awareness in 1948 of the magnitude, just the idea of, of a homeland for the Jewish people. Uh, whether or not we would actually move there, but that there was a re revival, a resuscitation of Jewish sovereignty in in the biblical land of Israel, uh, it was a was a big deal, and it wasn't something that came overnight. Even though it, it seems to have come overnight, but it was building up for for many decades. So, so when we had the opportunity to uh, go to Israel the first time when I was four. Uh, for me, it was an adventure, but for my parents, for my mother in particular, it was really a fulfillment. Uh, this was probably 25 years after the declaration of the state. It's it's hard to believe now. We're looking at 70 years of Israel. I guess I'm, I'm older than I feel sometimes, and I, sometimes I feel older than I am. But, <laughs> but arriving in Israel by ship, because we had been camping through Europe, arriving to Haifa and, and being on that ship, my first awareness of Israel physically was seeing the, the mountain of Mount Carmel get closer and closer and then the ship being pulled into the dock and stepping off. It's it's different than, than landing by plane. It's different than zooming, of course, uh, and then walking on to the land of Israel. For me, it wasn't a mystical experience at first because I was still very young. My first experience at the Western Wall was, was a wall. And honestly, there's not that much about the Western Wall if you don't know what the background is, it's it's just a wall, uh, which, you know, in, in Jewish exegesis, Mount Sinai was just, just a mountain. And people think they've identified this mountain, that mountain, it's so prominent. It wasn't a prominent mountain. Uh, there was a, there's a certain humility. And most American Jews, their first time in Israel, there's a buildup because they're, they're so, they're so knowledgeable about it, about the meaning about the significance. Uh, so for me, I'm not an Israeli, but I think I have some intuition about what what the Israeli uh, ethos is 
as it relates to the meaning of the land of Israel and the normalcy of the land of Israel. It's the normalcy that is the miracle, I think, that there's a normal country uh, that is Israel. And for me, when I approach the, just to, to jump forward now to, let's say, the present day, the possibility of a lasting peace uh, with the Palestinians, the idea of normalcy that Israel would have defined final borders and a defined relationship with with some Palestinian entity, that uh, that would be a closed chapter. Uh, for me, that is that is part and parcel of of what would make Israel really a lasting and sustainable enterprise that would be a vessel for the for the kind of holiness and spirituality that many of us Jews and 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 non-Jews uh, want to inject into it and want to derive from it. Hmm. Hmm. Wow, there are so many trails I'd like to go down with you on those points. Uh, and I will return to one of them uh, in a minute. Um, and before I ask you about your optimism or pessimism about the prospect of peace, um, maybe we can kind of set the frame here by talking a little bit about how you assess the current relationship between the United States and Israel, that lost conversation that we had that's fragmented out in in uh, the digital universe somewhere. It was early on, very early on, uh, in the Biden administration. And I wonder now with these months having elapsed, if uh, your assessment is the same, but how do you see it now in terms of the formal relationship between the two countries? Let me first say that I, I mean, I, I, I've, I've met and spent some time with Joe Biden uh, years back and actually volunteered on his short-lived, uh, his short-lived uh, presidential campaign in 1987. Hmm. But he has always been staunch advocate for Israel and a promoter of Israel's right to security and prosperity. So I never had any doubts about that. The the fear, the, I guess we could call it fear, is the suspicion that has been instilled against, uh, well, there was an attempt to instill it against Bill Clinton. That didn't work. Uh, there was a pretty strong effort against Barack Obama. And uh, and there were all these predictions of terrible things that what he would do to Israel, none of which came to pass. And... Uh, with Biden, I think it's a little more difficult. Now, maybe there's a racial aspect to that, but it's been pushed. The, the primary pusher of this has been uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, who at this point continues to be the acting or caretaker prime minister of Israel. Uh, but for him, it's been because he, I think because he grew up mostly in the United States and his first big debut as UN ambassador was in the United States, uh, the United States is an extension for him of his political strategy in Israel. He's done a lot of dividing and ruling in Israel, and I think he's, a, he's extended that to the United States, where he's basically, uh, his coalition partners are the Republican Party. Uh, and, you know, if, if they're offered the opportunity to turn Israel into a wedge issue, then um, of course they should, I guess, take it. Uh, but that does, does not help Israel, and uh, it does not help American Jews, at least. Uh, it's uh, there's really very little difference between uh, between Democrats and Republicans in terms of Israel's security. There are differences within Israel, within Israeli politics, and, and we're going to see them now if there's a a national unity government between a, a center-left party led by Yair Lapid and a, a right-wing party led by Naftali Bennett. We'll see those those fissures. Uh, they are real and they are also legitimate. And there's no reason why American politicians can't have different approaches to uh, peace with the Palestinians, to 
how to best stop Iran's nuclear program and uh, and whether whether critical views of Israel are to be considered anti-Semitism and therefore not welcome on a on a college campus as part of normal university debate, academic debate. Uh, so there are those legitimate differences, and uh, I don't think they need to be turned into an up or down, are you for Israel or against Israel? And, and I'd like to explore that with you a little further because I'm situated in a community that is the American evangelical community where it really is cast as binary. You are either for Israel and therefore for Netanyahu or you are against Israel. And that means, and that is indicated by being critical of Netanyahu or anyone else for that matter. Um, you don't see it as binary. I don't, and I want to be careful about analyzing the American evangelical community, since I'm not part of it and I don't study it professionally. Sometimes but, outsiders have a better, <laughs> well, a better appreciation of what's happening than you, you and the listeners will, will let me know. I'm sure. So. I, I think the evangelical community has several points of connection with the state of Israel and, and with Benjamin Netanyahu and, and the right-wing political circles in Israel. Uh, but one of those, and I, I think the most important one, is uh, biblical prophecy. And I would say that the establishment of the state of Israel and the Six-Day War, uh, I certainly see those as, as fitting in somehow to biblical prophecy. But if, if we only see the biblical scale, then how do we get to that ultimate point of fulfillment, spiritual fulfillment, fulfillment of the prophecy. Now, for evangelicals, maybe it's more about uh, about some heavenly intervention that just happens. Uh, from a Jewish perspective, the tendency is that we need to we need to work toward it. And there are different views of, of what messianic age means. One is that there is this divine uh, descent or uh, bringing down of, of divinity into Jerusalem and reviving, bringing the dead back to life. And uh, that has tended to be a narrative emphasized more during periods of tremendous persecution. And uh, the other view, which is more Maimonides from, I guess, the 11th century, is that uh, that the Messiah will be flesh and blood, and that there will be peace in the world, but that uh, it will be more. Uh, there's still there's somehow the dead coming back to life, but it's more about how we get there, what we have to do to to earn that, to make it happen. And if we only focus on the biblical fulfillment, then we we miss the opportunities to get. To, from point A to point B to point C to step across that that pond, and uh, I think the the idea that we can just sidestep the Palestinian issue and move straight to establishing the American embassy in Jerusalem, and then, and then what comes next is it is it the rapture? Is it is it the end of days? If it leads to a war, then then that's that's Gog and Magog and and Armageddon, which is which is leading through to something else. That's not there, there are in some of the latter prophets, Jewish prophets, there, there are some intimations of that, but uh, the idea that there has to be some big war and, and some big judgment of the righteous against the, the wicked. In Judaism, there is no real hell. There's more of a, a purgatory, and, and then there's sort of a purgatory light, and then there's, there's heaven, whatever that means, and there are many different views. So I'm kind of going around it a little bit, but... I, I'm glad I, you I, are. I'm glad you are. I think I think 
we need to have an appreciation for the expanse of all that thinking and multiple perspectives and interpretations, which I think is one of the great gifts of Judaism, including to its, uh, uh, you know, I hope I don't offend by saying, you know, as I see it, Christianity is uh, a, a, a child of Judaism in many ways. I mean, it, it, we derive so much from it already, but often, at least in my branch of Christianity, we fail to appreciate the full scope of Jewish perspective, interpretation, belief systems, and so on. Um, and, and, and let me drill in just a little bit, if I may, on some of these points. Uh, and that is, you know, I, I think sometimes Christians have an overly simplistic idea about how Jews themselves feel about Israel, that, you know, every Jewish person is for Benjamin Netanyahu and what he is doing there today and has an uncritical view of, of Israel. That's not my, my understanding. <laughs> there seem to be a lot of different opinions, even uh, among close friends of mine, like yourself uh, versus others. They have different opinions about Israel, about the politics uh, in Israel. Uh, what about all of that? Um, am I right? Yes. There are also different levels of information. Some people aren't as informed, and people get their information different ways. People get their information from email newsletters that might be focused on, on one aspect. It could be the the problems for non-Orthodox Jews in Israel to have full access, religious access. It could be could be focused on the settlements in the West Bank uh, becoming normalized as part of the state of Israel or annexed. So there, there are different different levels, different directions of information, and also many different views. American Jews don't live day to day in Israeli existence. So when the when the political forces try to polarize and say, well, if you don't believe X, X, Y, and Z, then you're not really a good Jew, you're not a good Zionist, some people will adjust to meet those partisan uh, guidelines. Some people will say you're wrong and they'll they'll focus on on building up their their constituency on the other side. And some people will say, you know, this isn't worth it to me. I'm just gonna, if, if, if there are all these rules just to get in the door, then I'll stay outside. And, you know, I'm happy to send a check once in a while to plant trees in Israel, but I'm gonna leave it at that because this is just, it's too complicated. It's not, it doesn't match the kind of lifestyle that I'm used to in the United States where people can have different points of view Although I have to say over the last four or five years, perhaps things have become a little more polarized in the United States. That might be a different conversation or we could fit it in now. So I, there, Take there are liberty. different shades, but I think the, the worst outcome is that, is that people, uh, students on campus, I think perhaps that's the, the clearest Petri dish, the clearest lab for, for testing this, we see that students on campus, Jewish students, I'm, I'm foc I'll focus on because that's what I know best, uh, most of them are not, they just check out on the Israel stuff because there's so much divisiveness between Jewish groups on campus, right and left, or I could say right, left, and center, which center is trying to hold the line or trying to bring everybody into a big tent. And then uh, the the uh, non-Jewish students, uh, I would say particularly, tend to be Arab or Arab background, but not only. Uh, some of them are Jewish. Uh, people that are saying Israel is wrong, and other people are saying Israel is right, or Netanyahu is right. And some, I think most Jewish students are interested in learning more about Israel, in, in, find, in, in connecting more to Israel, and feeling Israel. 
and uh, the, the culture, the history, having some open conversation where people aren't taking notes just so they can have a good comeback when the person finishes what they're saying. Uh, that's what I, I went through. I was a campus activist. I was, I was one of the people that was defending Israel. Every time a Palestinian speaker came, I would, I would be there and I'd be ready with a question. And I'd be figuring out what question. And until I got to graduate school, I didn't really listen to what people were saying. And I, I might disagree with what they're saying, but I can learn from what they're saying. And the students who want to learn about Israel on campus, who really want to learn, they're not going to these demonstrations. They're not going to the lectures uh, by, by visiting uh, activists. They're going to the lectures by professors. They're reading the books. But most of the students are just going to, I'm afraid, going to check out. And then then we lose a tremendous opportunity. This is really not a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. This is a once-in-history opportunity where there's a state of Israel, a modern state of Israel, there's a democracy that that's, has a Jewish identity with, with internet and everything. It connects the whole world. And, and we're driving people away. And I, I think that's a big tragedy. So to the extent that evangelicals may think that, uh, that, they're, that they're in, uh, that, that's great. Uh, but the American Jewish community is not going through all the same processes. There are some, there are some American Jews who support Trump, who support Netanyahu, and there tends to be a, a bit of an overlap there. And uh, when evangelicals meet those Jews, then they may find a lot of common cause because those Jews are not so concerned about, well, how do we actually deal with these millions of Palestinians if we annex the West Bank and don't give them any rights and we keep taking away their land and we keep chopping down their olive trees that have been there for thousands of years. They, they, yes, the olive trees used to be Jewish olive trees. <laughs> now they're Palestinian olive trees and we're chopping them down. So how, how, how that somehow leads to fulfillment of, of prophecy, and it could lead to fulfillment of prophecy, but it won't lead to peace and it won't lead to coexistence and it won't lead to some kind of stable, normal state of Israel. If we're just focused on the end of days, then I guess maybe that's the way to go. Uh, but the average American Jew is not waiting for the end of days to happen. That's, that's not the goal. The goal is what do we do in this life at this point in history? We do our work. We do our, our service. And, and when it comes, it comes. One of the points I like to make in my conversations with my fellow evangelicals is that while it may appear that we're optimistic about Israel uh, in the immediate, uh, at least in the interim, if not ultimately, our, our instruction, our information, our interpretation is quite pessimistic for the future of Israel. Uh, so, you know, that alone should cause us to ask some very deep questions about our own relationship uh, with Israel. But speaking of optimism versus pessimism, what about you? Are you generally one or the other about uh, the prospect of peace for Israel, about the future of uh, global relations for Israel, for relationship with the United States in particular, just overall, how, how do you see all of that? Let me ask you first, Rob, when you say that there's pessimism among, among evangelicals, what do you mean by that? Well, one is because the telling of our story about the future of Israel involves a catastrophe of enormous proportion, and you alluded to it, Armageddon the Great War, uh, which will be a bloodbath in that part of the world. The other is, uh, you know, I've, I've had to really reassess uh, our disposition towards the spiritual security of uh, Jewish people. You know, there's, a, there's an idea that there has to be a mass conversion that takes place of sorts, an embrace of Jesus Christ as Messiah, as Lord and Savior, uh, and that that's part of the thinking. So that has to happen. And without it, and this is, I'm really pushing uh, 
boundaries in my own community because depending on how you look at that, you, you could look at that uh, religiously as optimistic, you know, okay, that puts the Jewish people in a better position with God, or it actually leaves you deeply skeptical and, and, and even perhaps sorrowful uh, because it, you know, even in the prophetic imagination, it, it's not unanimous, it's not total. So our, our relationship is a very, um, is, is uh, a very conflicted, uh, problematic one. And, and I've even, I've had many conversations with Israelis who resent the attitude, and understandably so, of American evangelicals towards Israel. It, it's kind of a self-interest, you know, uh, let's champion Israel, first of all, because that means the United States will be blessed. Well, you know, there's nothing terribly wrong with reciprocity in that way. But uh, if it's to get us down the road here to our ultimate salvation, which is the return of our Savior, uh, then you have to start wondering about motive, whether there's really a, a pure motive in terms of the relationship to Israel. So all of this, mm -hmm. I think, is worthy of very careful examination because it, it's not uh, often what it at first appears to be. There's a Jewish concept that when someone engages in a positive act, a righteous act, not for the right reasons, they eventually do it for the right reasons. So when you have young evangelicals, teenagers coming to Israel, developing relationships, feeling the vibe of Israel, whatever that means to them, uh, when you have evangelicals and American uh, American evangelicals and American Jews working together, uh, I, I think you develop these personal, individual connections that go beyond uh, some kind of opportunistic theology, a theological strategy, let's call it. Uh, so there might, yeah, I, 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 I'm certainly aware of that. Uh, and, I, and I mention it to people sometimes when they say, isn't it great we have all the evangelicals? And I say, well, yeah, but... <laughs> What's going to happen? What's going to happen? And you know when they when you know when the time comes. Uh, but uh, well, but thank I, you because that <laughs> that that again is an optimistic view of all of that, and I agree with you. In fact, I've seen that uh, with evangelicals and Muslims when I've had the pleasure of hosting exchanges either here in the U.S. or in uh, Islamic countries where. You know, I've taken a group of American evangelicals and deep bonds of friendship have been established and suddenly it starts affecting a whole lot of things, including religious judgment about others and so forth. So I, I see your point and, and I appreciate it uh, and, and it proves you are the optimist I, I understand you to be. Now I'm going to get more particular. What about the prospect of peace? I, I'm not optimistic at the moment because, not just because of who's in charge everywhere, although I, I think the, the Biden administration is a step forward from the Trump administration. And I know there was the Abraham Accords with the Emirates and with Bahrain and Morocco has reopened relations, which they had before actually as a consequence of Oslo. and. Uh, Sudan apparently has, uh, we'll, we'll see, but Israel doesn't actually need relations with more countries, I don't think. It would be, it's nice. Israel is a first world country. It has uh, one of the top 10 militaries, one of the top 10 economies. It's, they call themselves with a lot of justification, a startup nation because of all the startups. Uh, so, so is, you know, uh, Nicolas Sarkozy, a number of years ago, uh, after he was 
president of France and before he was convicted of corruption, uh, he was with his wife visiting Israel and there was some there, there was some conflict uh, going on with uh, with Gaza, between Israel and Gaza, with Hamas. And he was asked by the press in Israel, what do you think about Israel's security and the threat to Israel at this time? And he said, you know, I, I traveled all over the world and everywhere I go, I hear that Israel is a strong country. There's only one place where I hear that it's a it's a weak, threatened country, and that's here in Israel. Uh, I, I think maybe because of the centuries of persecution, and uh, maybe because of the, yeah, certainly for the first decades of Israel's existence, being surrounded by enemies that were consistently trying to destroy it completely, uh, there is a sense of, uh, uh, let's call it a survival instinct, a sense of insecurity and uh, it's, it's sort of ingrained, I guess. Uh, but at some point, that, that sense of insecurity is no longer a survival instinct. It's, a, it's, the, it's the opposite of a survival instinct. And the chance you're taking by making peace is seen as greater than the chance of not making peace. Uh, that is to say, not taking the chance to make peace. Not taking the chance to make peace doesn't mean you stay where you are. It means things keep getting worse. And I think we've seen that. And it's not just that things get worse on the ground in terms of the, the demographic challenges, in terms of Palestinians, the, the uh, increasing radicalization, the departure of the professional class and capital flight from, from the Palestinian areas. But it also, it also affects the Israeli psyche. This, these, I think that as optimistic as I am, I'm also realistic in seeing that the that Israelis are generally pessimistic about those chances. And yeah, I think the average Israeli thinks it's great that we have peace with the Emirates, which is a small duty-free shop on the, on the, on the you know, Arabian or Persian Gulf. But, mm. uh, but what about these it? Palestinians that we see? And I don't mean to denigrate the Emirates, but from an Israeli perspective, you know, what are they really going to do in the Emirates? Are they going to, are they going to open a fruit stand? Are they going to open a startup there? When, they have startups in Israel. There's more technology and more technological advancement in Israel than there is in the Emirates. The Emirates is all—they're already—they were already buying stuff from Israelis. Israelis were already there under if they have a second passport from another country. Uh, but these these centuries of persecution, I think. Let me just go back to the, what we were just talking about in terms of the evangelicals. I think the centuries of persecution were primarily about getting Jews to convert, or the fact that Jews were not converting. And so the average Jew grows up feeling that, okay, I might go into a mosque, but, but I can't go into a church because my ancestors were forced to go into churches. My ancestors may have been martyred because they wouldn't go into a church. Uh, and you know what? When you finally go into the church, it's like, oh, look, there's there's a... Uh, you know, in Italy, you're great because you're a tourist. You start going to churches because it's that's where all the art is. And look, there's there's the story, the floor in in this cathedral in uh, maybe Orvieto. It the whole floor is the story of Elijah. So when I was 11 years old, I could show my parents what each what each one meant. Each each little vignette. It's a story that I that I'd learned in school. So we find that there there are a lot of connections and there are a lot of opportunities if we're not being forced. And I think in Israel today, there's a lot of religious coercion going on, uh, Jews against, against other Jews. Uh, the, uh, there's a religious establishment which has become powerful. It's become literally corrupted because there are, there are constant uh, trials and convictions and sentencing to prison of, of religious leaders and political religious leaders, uh, religious political leaders. Uh, and and there's no there's no room for anybody that wants to do something. There's very little room for people that want to do something outside of a specific doctrine, which is not even universally accepted by by Orthodox Jews. Uh, so I think that's created a it, it repels people from from a religious experience that they would otherwise have naturally. In the in the secular public schools in Israel, it's basically forbidden to teach the Bible as 
religion. It can only be taught as, as history or literature. And that's not because the secular Israelis refuse to teach it as religion. That's because the religious parties that control the education, uh, not just for religious schools, but for all schools, they they refuse, well, actually they control it. Not, sometimes they control it or sometimes they're able to veto. They will not allow the Bible to be taught as religion except in religious schools. So, so people are being cut out of, of a tremendous opportunity to, to really connect the, what they're living with, with what, was, what was written, what was given on Mount Sinai. So, so uh, I, I think in, in American life, we also see that there's a religious coercion that goes on. And I, I think we have enough diversity of religion in America that we're not at that point where there's only one way to be officially religious. But, but I think there is a, a sort of a checking out from spirituality because people assume that I have to, one has to meet certain criteria in order to, in order to come in to the church or to a synagogue. And that's unfortunate. But back back to the piece, I, I think I think there is there are certain mentalities, and there are mentalities on all sides. And the longer we go, the longer we go without peace, the longer we go with pretending that we're doing things that are bring peace. There's actually a it's got kind of gaslighting this idea that put out that that by annexing parts of the West Bank that will somehow lead to peace that uh, it'll convince the Palestinians that they have no choice but to come under Israeli sovereignty or something. I, I, don't, think pe- I don't think people work that way. The Salvation Army uh, officers that I saw marching, these young people, some of them were older, actually, but they didn't give up after 70 years. 70 years of, of persecution. Groupthink, where they were not allowed to even say certain words or concepts, they still had it in them. So I, I think there's, there's tremendous resiliency but at some point uh there's so much pessimism there's so much mutual suspicion that is stoked by the politicians we, we've seen this in the balkans we've seen this in the united states over the last few years so i think i don't know if we're running out of time but i think this is not the time i mean i think we need to do everything we can to sort of keep the keep the body warm but actual peace I think it needs to be, we need to go back and, and try to repair damage and then reconstruct and start rebuilding some confidence. But it's going to take everybody, Israeli leaders, Palestinian leaders, American Jewish leaders, obviously American leaders and politicians to to focus on that and to build each other up. And that's hard to do. That's hard to do. It might be, it might be 20 years. Uh, so maybe that's a little bit of a biblical, <laughs> biblical scale there. Uh, we'll see what comes first, the, the bloody war or the, or the peace. Well, I'm going to ask you for a little bit of help here, and I hate to be so provincial, <laughs> but I, I am kind of fixated on my own tribe because this issue is so um, divisive. It's so incendiary right now uh, in my religious community, which, of course, has a very big influence, at least within the Republican Party and, and in Republican politics here in the United States. So I'm going to ask you something here, if I may, uh, Shai, and that is, you know, it, 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 is it as stark as the voices within my community are saying, uh, all right, you know, the Trump administration had a plan for peace, had they been given the opportunity, they could have brought it to completion. Uh, But instead, you know, as the story is told now, the election was stolen. Joe Biden is now a pretender to the throne and he's against Israel. And so there's no prospect for peace. There's no, uh, you know, we've put Israel in peril. Uh, by by putting a, a, a democratic uh, you know regime in place, can can you help my folks to get a little little better assessment of that situation? You know, what I'm discussing theology with somebody who is a fervent believer. 
I understand that I'm not necessarily going to convince them. I'm interested in what they think, and maybe they're interested in what I think, and we find that interesting, but we're not trying to convince each other. And my theology may not be totally based, grounded in reality, and their theology may not be totally grounded in reality, and it doesn't have to be, and maybe it shouldn't be. Uh, anybody who believes that the election was stolen, anybody who believes that vaccines are dangerous, is not basing their argument on proven facts, because the proven facts are the opposite of what they say or what they think, which is actually more alarming. So I'm not going to try to convince somebody who believes the election was stolen that Trump's peace plan was not useful or constructive, because no facts that I bring are going to convince them. However, since you asked, I'll say that the Trump's plan for peace was not a plan for peace. His plan was to basically give give Israel and and through it, I think, evangelical interests uh, more of a triumph over the Middle East to uh, to move the embassy to Jerusalem, the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem, the U.S. embassy to Israel only, not not to the Palestinians, to cut funding for the Palestinians, many of whom, by the way, are are Christians. Uh, which is a little strange that that evangelicals would support cutting aid to Christians, to food, medicine, schooling for young Christian children, and uh, recognizing the the annexation of the Golan Heights, which is something from decades ago that there was no pressing need to recognize that. Syria is a basket case now anyway. It's not like there's some need to show that Israel has the Golan Heights, which was originally part of Syria. And originally, it was before, before 1967, at least. So, the plan for peace they had a they had a chance. They had a chance to build confidence with the Palestinians, build confidence with the Israelis. Four years was plenty of time, but instead they focused on punishing the Palestinians, rewarding not Israel, rewarding Netanyahu, and in the last uh, closing weeks of the administration, putting together this. This, these deals with various Arab countries, which is which is great, but they don't really. None of these countries were in conflict with Israel. Most of them were doing business with Israel, either directly or indirectly. Morocco has a still has an active Jewish community, five thousand Jews, not that many, but uh, they have Jews in the government. So uh, and Bahrain has has Jews in in government. The Emirates doesn't have any indigenous Jews, but they have a lot of Israelis and and other Jews living in in, in UAE and doing business there. So uh, Trump's plan for peace he had four years. He had four years. One of the things that made peace work, for example, with Egypt, is that Jimmy Carter came into office. And he didn't decide to start from scratch. He didn't decide to undo everything Nixon did in the Middle East. He built on that. The Camp David Accords, the Camp David talks, were were a part of a continuum that goes back to the disengagement talks that that Nixon and Kissinger organized with Egypt after the '73 war. So, so there there had always been a continuity. Uh, the Oslo Accords that Bill Clinton put together, they they grew directly from the Madrid talks, the Madrid conference that that President Bush and and Jim Baker put together after the Desert Storm, after the Gulf War, uh, Kuwait. So so starting from scratch, it it didn't really do anything. And, and, you know, if there's... If there's... If there was some... If there was some peace process... Now, the, the Biden administration is looking to build on the Abraham Accords. So that's great. Uh, But... The Abraham Accords, where they were always there on the shelf, there was, there was, not much holding back the Emirates or the or Bahrain from making peace, formal peace with Israel. It's great that they did it, but it wasn't a heavy lift, and there was no, there's no, there's no peace plan. There's actually no peace plan. I know they they put together some kind of an eighty-page uh, term paper, but in terms of how to actually get there, it, it's not about coming up with the perfect plan. It's more about building trust. And, and, and going step by step. There's no, there's no miracle plan that, that nobody thought of a way to make peace. We, we know what it would take to make peace. The trick really is how to get there. And how to get there is, is building confidence so that Israelis feel secure giving up, giving up title to 
some contiguous parts of the West Bank and Gaza and figuring out some kind of sovereignty sharing in Jerusalem that would not not undermine Israel's Jewish identity, but would also give Palestinians and and the wider Arab and Muslim world, which is over one billion people, a sense that they have a foothold in Jerusalem, that they don't have to wish and pray for the destruction of the state of Israel in order to have that foothold in Jerusalem. So, and that I think would help help stabilize a lot of the Middle East and a lot of the, because uh, so many so many of the dictators are they still use that as as sort of a, a cause, a cause celeb that they have to liberate and just take the oxygen out and make it easier so that Israelis, young Israelis, don't have to spend their best years guarding Palestinians and keeping Palestinians from getting to their jobs. Uh, this is it's, it's a terrible situation. It's demoralizing. And it doesn't have to be that way, but it, it won't happen overnight. So uh, in terms of Trump, I'm not going to be able to convince somebody that really believes Trump uh, won the election, that anything Trump did wasn't 100% the best ever, because they're simply not grounded in reality. And that may be an outgrowth of some evangelical theology, which which I, I try to separate between what I, I... I know that in the in the Torah... It says that the God created the world in six days, and the seventh day actually was also part of creation. It created rest, which means different things. But I also know that it took billions of years for the earth to develop and evolve and for humans to evolve. And I'm able to carry both of those realities in my head at the same time, and they're not in conflict with each other because the Bible is not a science book. And science is not a theology. So I don't need to reconcile them. Some people may need to reconcile them. That could be a, a theological constraint. It could be a, 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 an intellectual limitation. But uh, for me, I'm, I'm able to carry those realities together. And if just because I believe something in my heart doesn't mean, if I believe in, in some prophetic fulfillment, then if I truly believe in prophetic fulfillment, then giving the Palestinians sovereignty over parts of most of the West Bank and sharing some kind of sovereignty, some Arab Muslim, giving some Arab Muslim sovereignty in some part of Jerusalem, that, that cannot in any way subvert prophetic fulfillment. Mm -hmm. If you really believe that something's going to happen, then, then fine, let's have a temporary solution until that happens. Let's have some power-sharing coexistence with the Palestinians and when, when Armageddon happens, or when our messianic uh, model happens, then, then that'll change things. Or maybe, at least from the Jewish side, from the Maimonidean vision of, of the messianic age, maybe that kind of power sharing and coexistence will lead to the messianic age. It won't lead to all Jews converting to Christianity, though. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying that. Shai... This has been a wonderful, wonderful conversation. Uh, I had high expectations for it, but it has exceeded all of my expectations. You've given us a spiritual, intellectual, diplomatic, uh, certainly educational perspective on all of this. Most of all, I think you've given us a spiritual reality check on all of it, and it's enormously helpful. Folks who are listening in, I'm going to ask you if you would please share it with others. I think Shai has been enormously generous with us in this uh, hour or so we've spent together. Let's be just as generous with others. And uh, Shai, no objection if we spread this around? <laughs> no, no objection at all. In all, in, all, in all humility and in all admiration for everything that you do, Rob, and everything that you stand for, everything. Well, I thank you so much for your camaraderie, for your companionship, your friendship, your collegial partnership with... Uh, the Institute. We're better for it. Let me ask, how can folks read more of you? I, I read everything you write, 
But what are the access points? How can people find you in, in I used to say in print, that's antiquated now, in text? Well, I have a, I have a website, shyfranklin.com, S-H-A-I-F-R-A-N-K-L-I-N. I put all my articles up there, and there's also a link to my YouTube channel uh, where I, I do TV commentary on usually about the Middle East, but also sometimes what's going on in the United States. Uh, and uh, you can Google Shy Franklin, a lot of stuff will come up. Great. And I know, of course, from time to time, we see you pop up in the Jerusalem Post, in the Times of Israel. Uh, do you have other kind of regular uh, writing gigs? Let's see. Uh, these days, it's mostly Jerusalem Post and Times of Israel. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I publish in The Hill, which yeah, is that's right. uh, a Washington publication. And uh, also, I'm, I'm on Twitter, which is, I tend to be a little more punchy on Twitter. Good. That's at Shy Franklin. And, so, uh, folks, if you want to get the more pugilistic yeah. side of this <laughs> consummate diplomat, go to Twitter. I, <laughs> Give I, us your I Twitter should, handle yeah, again. I, although, these, these, it's at Shy Franklin. Okay. These, days, these days, though, the more pugilistic diplomats tend not to get confirmed by the Senate. Well, that's right. <laughs> but I'm not in. I don't think. I don't think I'm in that in that league at the moment. I, I would say the the current. I have a current thread on Twitter that is pinned to my profile. So if you go to Shy Franklin, you'll see a thread that I posted uh, several weeks ago about what I feel the lessons of the Holocaust are, mm. particularly for mm. Jews, but also for the world, and this idea that that if the lessons of the Holocaust are only that if are only to uh, to make sure that Jews aren't aren't mass murdered, then we haven't really learned much about the Holocaust or from the Holocaust. And I think that also feeds into some of the Bonhoeffer approach. Oh, it most certainly does. Uh, we will follow all those threads. Folks, share this link around. Uh, it's critical. It's critically important that we have a realistic assessment of what's happening uh, in the world today, and particularly as it involves the state of Israel. Shai, you've given us a postdoctoral seminar today, and I'm so grateful for it. Thank you for this installment. Uh, and Thank I you. think we all know you a little better now. I even know you a little better. For as good as I've known you, I, I know you even more after this conversation. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. I'm really honored. <laughs>